Are you ready? Are you ready? Doesn't matter because we're getting started. 1231. Oh, we're a minute late. You can go 101 today. Okay, one minute over. We got a grace buffer. So welcome if this is your first time with us at Tuesday's Ruth Chris Bible Study. We're welcome you, glad to have you, however you found out about us. Um, we are in the midst, actually we're half past halfway towards the book, uh, through the book of Exodus. We've been studying it, and the way we do it in this Bible study is we study it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We don't skip the boring parts, because that's where there's a lot of good stuff. And it took us a year and a half to get through Genesis, and we started Exodus on the first weekend of this year. So we will probably be done close to the end of this year. Um, but it's much more important, I think, in general, to study scripture in depth this way, rather than jumping from topic to topic, and a little bit from here, a little bit from there, because scripture was written as whole books. They would, you know, we say it all the time, chapters and verses are, those didn't even come until the Middle Ages, and verses didn't even come until after the printing press. So uh, the whole idea of breaking up the Bible into these little snippets is really foreign to how the writers of scripture intended it to be read. And so uh, for centuries, even before Jesus' day, people learned the scriptures by learning the story of the scriptures. And they, they recited and they, they memorized and they knew the, the, the narrative flow, particularly of the Exodus. The Exodus is the most important event in the Bible other than Easter. There's, there's Easter resurrection and then there's the Exodus. That's, those, are, those are the two mountaintops. And so it's unfortunate that a lot of um, churches don't have the, either the time or resources or the desire to study through these Old Testament books because these are the books that formed the faith of the people of God for centuries. And even, even centuries after the New Testament period, you know, people didn't have a New Testament for a good three, four hundred years in some places after the events happened. Those were the stories that people were telling each other about what Jesus had done. But when they looked to do Bible studies, they opened their Torah scrolls and they read from the prophets and they read from the Psalms. So that's why I'm uh, a big proponent of studying scripture through, particularly the Old Testament, because in a lot of ways it's the forgotten book. And we've been in this section, we're going to finish it out today, this section that, that straddles chapters 20 through chapter 23, halfway through this chapter. And it's the section that we're in is the covenant code. And what's happened is God has called Israel out of Egypt out of slavery. He's delivered them. The whole first half of Exodus is, a, is one big treatise on how God is sovereign over the Egyptian gods and the idols that the people had worshipped in Egypt. And the second half of Exodus is now that God is going to bring Israel out and he's going to create them to be and craft them to be the people that he wants them to be in the land that he's going to take them in the next section of, the, of their journey. So we're at a hinge point, and that hinge involves them spending a year at the base of Mount Sinai, learning and receiving this covenant from God, this covenant, uh, which is a binding agreement, a covenant. That's what it means, and the word testament, Old and New Testament. Testament is just the Latin version of the word covenant. So when you're reading the New Covenant, you're reading the New Agreement. When you're reading the Old Covenant, you're reading the Old Agreement that God had made with Israel at Mount Sinai. So really important to keep that in mind because we've talked about as we've looked at this section, God started it with the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words as they're called. 
and it's like, these are the 10 things that you have to know about who you are and who I am. Then he gave them a section that we're in right now, the covenant code that says, now let's extrapolate on these 10. Here's what it'll look like in this setting. Here's what it'll look like in this setting. Here's what it'll look like when you go to court. Here's what it'll look like when you worship. So he's fleshing out those 10. And then the whole book of, Le book of Leviticus and the whole book of Deuteronomy are going to spell out even more what those are going to look like in their day-to-day -day life. So he's giving him the covenant in these concentric layers. And he's starting at the top, think like a wedding cake. You know, at the top, what's the most important thing? The little bride and the groom. They're there. That's the top piece. That's the piece they get. Nobody can eat from that piece. That's theirs. Then the next layer and the next layer, those are distributed to the guests and everybody gets to partake. So it's like moving down in importance. Well, we're in the middle layer the covenant section. So he's got the Ten Commandments, and, and it's not an uh, unfit analogy because God will refer elsewhere throughout the rest of the Old Testament as this period of Israel in the wilderness, he will refer to this as when he married Israel, when they became his wife and he became their husband. He talks about it specifically throughout the prophets and explicitly in uh, Ezekiel chapter 23 really want to read some like blush material read Ezekiel chapter 23 because he talks about it and then he talks about what they did after this marriage where they went and immediately committed adultery immediately like before the ink had dried on the marriage certificate they were already committing adultery and that will be that will characterize the history of his people throughout much of the Old Testament but right now we're still at the wedding vows we're still God has, has brought them to the base of the mountain they're there he's giving them the laws and this last section that we're going to look at, it flows, these are airtight components. They've all flowed in and out. It's touched every aspect of life, from how you raise your crops, how you raise your herds, how you deal with one another, how you handle lawsuits. It's all blended together because one of the things that God was showing was that his people were to be a people who were holy at every aspect of their lives. The, the Canaanites and the Egyptians believed, live your life how you want, and as long as you say the right words and give the right sacrifices and pay the right amount to the certain priests, then the gods will take care of you and you're good to go. Your religion was different than your ethics. They didn't inform one another directly. What God is doing is completely shattering that notion and saying, no, your religion is determined by your ethics and your ethics are determined by your religion. It's this reciprocal relationship. So you can't claim to be a follower of Yahweh. You can't claim to be a member of the covenant community if you're not living according to the covenant demands. Basic Salvation 101. They didn't earn their exit from Egypt. They didn't earn their deliverance from Egypt, which God calls his salvation in the Old Testament. God sovereignly saved them through no effort on their own. However, that salvation entails and necessitates obedience. He brought them out of Egypt, but if they refused to walk or if they turned and went back to Egypt as some wanted to do, then they would not be saved in the fullest and truest sense. So this works faith mentality is woven throughout the entire Bible, and, and the worst thing that the Protestant Reformation did was split those in half. The worst thing that we did as Protestants was separate works from faith based on Luther and Calvin and others misreading passages from James and passages from Paul, because in the Hebrew Bible, they are one and the same. Your works are determined by your faith. Your faith is determined by your works because they're, they're, it's holistic. It's who you are. So you can say, I worship Yahweh. I'm a member of the covenant community. Well, if your life is not 
lived according to that, then that shows that you're not a member of the covenant community in the Old Testament. And so that will then be the paradigm or how we think about salvation. That should be applied through the lens of Jesus into the New Testament as well. But we're like years away from the New Testament. So let's stick with the old. Chapter 23, verse 1. Still in the section about interpersonal relationships. Remember, God's priority in these commandments, these laws, is upholding shalom, preserving a sense of shalom, a sense of peace and wholeness in the community. So verse 23, do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness or a false witness. This again extrapolates on the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In the courts, there were no DNA testing. There was no surveillance camera. There was none of that back in the ancient uh, setting that this has taken place in. It was the way you were found guilty or innocent was usually based on eyewitness testimony. And death penalty cases could not be enacted unless there were two eyewitnesses who were willing to say, I saw them do that and I will bet my life on the fact that they're guilty. Because if you were found to be a false witness, you would receive the penalty that the person who is the defendant would have received. That would be a great thing to introduce into our legal system um, because that would definitely do what it did in Israel, which is prevent people from being a lying witness. It was literally a life or death situation. It prevented justice. It prevented, uh, God's, God's desire was that there be justice, there be mercy, but there be justice as well. And if you had lying witnesses, false witnesses, then, then people were, were perverting, denying God's justice. And he goes on to say, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. So here again, God's making a really cool balance. He's saying, one, don't go along with the crowd. Mob mentality is not what God wants for eyewitnesses or for faithful truth. It's, it doesn't matter what the crowd's saying. If you saw it, say it. If you didn't see it, don't say it. None of this, you know, uh, collective memory and, and just going along with, oh, everybody thinks they're guilty, so they must be guilty. What God wants is truth in his court proceedings. He wants honesty, faithful witnesses. And then he also, to clarify, I love this, uh, that it's included, he says, do not show favoritism. And you'd think he'd say, do not show favoritism to a rich person. But he's already said that in the previous section. Now he's doing the flip side of that. Don't just assume that because somebody's the poor person in a lawsuit that they're automatically innocent. In other words, don't be a social justice crusader to the point that you immediately suspect the evil rich person. Because there are evil poor people too. And there are evil rich people. Because there are evil people. So what God does in this section is he balances it out. And he says, basically, don't show favoritism to anybody. Don't go into something with a predetermined outlook in terms of who's righteous. Listen to the facts. Be a, a true witness. Don't side with the wicked. And that's what you do when you give a false testimony is you're siding with the wicked, either to get them off when they're guilty uh, or, or to punish the innocent when they didn't do it. Don't do that. Verse 4. Now he's going to switch to uh, more interpersonal. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. That's, that would be a case of finders keepers in the ancient world. Remember, your, your bull and your donkey, your livestock, these were like cars today. They were transportation, but more importantly, they were farm implements. They were work tools. They were really, and they were currency. 
This is an agricultural society. Your currency a lot of times was in your livestock. So if I'm out tending my flock and I see this sheep coming across into my land, yay, God sent me a blessing. And God's saying, no, I didn't. If you see that, and you would know that it belongs to your neighbor, they were branded, they were marked, they were just people knew each other. You'd know it's not yours. Go take it back to it. Don't just let it wander off your property. Go take it back to them. It's not yours, it's theirs. And there's a, there's a distinct upholding of, of the value of property rights and people not being greedy for dishonest gain. Make sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. So he said, first of all, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering in your field. So this isn't just like your neighbor who you're on good terms with. Enemy, person who you don't like. If you see their thing, take it to them. That would be a sting to have to do. That would, ah, oh, you would hate that walk. Having to return the property. It doesn't even say why you hate them. They could legitimately be a jerk. They could legitimately be a terrible person. Take it back to them which is not an easy thing to do when we're talking about miles in the Judean wilderness, which is as hilly as you know the mountains of Appalachia. Take it back to them. And then, so that's if you see your enemy. But now, in this one, he also says, if it's someone, if you see the donkey of someone who hates you. So not just someone you hate, but someone who hates you. In other words, in any situation where there's animosity, God's desire is to preserve the shalom of the community, the healing of the community, those interpersonal relationships. So you come across a donkey, the, the person that you know they hate you, you know they want you to just keep on walking, and you see that their donkey's struggling under their load, they've loaded it up with firewood or barley or grain or whatever, and it's having a rough time getting up the hills, and it's rocky, and it's, so it's, you know, it's, it's just falling down. He says, don't leave it, go help them. And it's ambiguous whether the help him means help the donkey or help the person. And the ambiguity is probably for a reason, both. Go and help them. Now think about what that would communicate to the person who hates you, to see you coming and helping them. And this is not a minor thing. This would be a little more arduous than changing a flat tire, you know, doing some minor car repair. You see somebody who hates you broken on the side, broken on the side of the road, stop, help them change their tire. Help them replace their spark plug. Help them, whatever it is, the, the analogy, help that person, even though they hate you. See, we think Jesus introduced the concept of love your enemy. Not at all. Jesus is just pointing people back to Torah. He got this from Exodus, from the Old Testament. So it goes on, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. That's a huge one. I've written an article on my website, jamesmith.org, in the article archive, and it's called uh, Biblical Thoughts on the Death Penalty. And, it's, and I try to, to look at the pros and the cons, and, and I don't take either side fully, um, but try to examine in light of Scripture. One of the main things that Scripture warns against is putting to death the innocent through false testimony or circumstantial evidence or not having two witnesses or whatever. And this is a serious warning here. God says, I will not acquit the guilty, meaning the, the people who rendered that verdict that put an innocent person to death. God himself will hold them guilty. So that should cause us, especially if we're in the world of legality and law and, and criminal punishment things, that should 
give us pause before being cavalier or flippant about any case that involves taking the life of someone else. But read the article if you want to see where I come down, because it ended up making people on both sides mad. Um, <laughs> verse 8, do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. Self-explanatory. Don't be bribable. Don't be beholden to special interests. Don't be, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. God says there's no room for that in his uh, people. <clears throat> do not oppress an alien or an immigrant, or I don't know what else word, alien, immigrant, sojourner, uh, different words are used. It means someone who comes to your country from another country where, they, where they're from. Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. This forms an inclusio, this forms a bookend with chapter 22, verse 21, where it said the exact same thing. So this whole section, God begins it with telling them you're going into a land, you will be given that land, you will be prospered in that land, I will bless you in that land, and then people will come into that land. Do not oppress them. He says it at the beginning, he says it at the end, it is as relevant today as it's ever been in the history of the world. Whether we're in Europe and their immigration crisis with the refugees in Syria, whether it's here and the debate about immigration here, however you land, the ethic that God is instilling, not the law, but the ethic that characterizes the law is everything we do. There should be a desire to care for and to not mistreat the immigrant, the sojourner, the alien. Because at one time, God's people were also immigrants, sojourners, and aliens. And they were mistreated brutally, taken advantage of. And we saw the whole first half of this book, what God did to that nation. So, however that works, into your politics, into your ethics, into your social policy, into your geopolitical, whatever, you just do with that what you will. But that, the text says, do not mistreat, because you yourselves were. Then it moves on. Now it's going to be a section. Uh, we're going to finish. Let's see how we're going to time. Yep. We're going to look probably through verse 19 if we can get there. This next section is going to be all about worship. Israel was freed from Egypt. Remember in Egypt, if you've been with us, they served Pharaoh. This verb served. And we saw how that was the same Hebrew word as worship. In Hebrew, it's the same word. Context determines whether it means serve or whether it means worship. And the big irony of Exodus is God is freeing them from serving slash worshiping Pharaoh, who was a false god, and freeing them into service slash worship of Yahweh, the true God. God doesn't free somebody to just let them go off on their own. He frees them into service of the only one who is worthy of being served, of being worshipped. So these, this section now is going to deal with, this is, this is how you're going to worship me. And these laws are going to expand upon the, the first few commandments. I have no other gods before me, no graven images, uh, honoring the Sabbath. You know, those first uh, ch chunk of the Ten Commandments. And they're going to be extrapolated major in the book of Leviticus. Like they'll be expanded completely in Leviticus. But this is just the introduction God's introducing some important. Number one, for six years, so you're to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. 
Do the same with your vineyard and your olive vine. God introduces a Sabbath year principle into the life of Israel's agricultural society. For six years, you're going to work. In the seventh year, let it be. Let the land rest. And there's a reason for it. One, because remember back during the Joseph cycle when Israel went into slavery, or when Joseph's family went down to Egypt, and there was going to be a famine, and it was going to last seven years. And so the first seven years, you know, work and store up, and the next seven years, you would live off that surplus. There's a hint of that going on here. But what God's saying is there's, there's a couple of things. One, I am testing you. If you live in an agricultural society, you live and die based on how you work the land. If you don't work the land, you die. If you don't tend the crops in the vineyards, you die and your animals die. What God's saying here is for six years, do that. And then in that seventh year, you're going to trust me. You're going to trust me that I've given you enough during the six years that you will have enough to survive during the seven. So one, it's an act of trust. Two, he's saying, also do this so that the poor among you can work that land and can eat of those crops that year. In other words, that, that Sabbath section, that, that, that part you're going to give to me symbolically is actually going to be eaten by the poor. And not only the poor, but the wild animals. God cares about the cattle on a thousand hills. God is concerned with this creation. There's so much in Genesis and in Exodus about caring for creation. It's not just concerned with getting people to heaven, but concerned with how we treat and how we care about this world that's his as well. The whole book of Jonah is going to be a tirade against nationalism and against the desire to think that it's just us and God and everybody else doesn't matter. God ends the book of Jonah with a rhetorical question to Jonah saying, don't you think I care about this city? There's like 100,000 people in there and their animals. All throughout, there's a thread that weaves throughout scripture of God caring for the animals, the, the non-people order of creation. That's not just a left-wing hippie thing. That's not just an environmentalist liberal thing. That's a God thing that's woven throughout scripture. Now you can take it and run with it and get all kinds of crazy weird views on it, but you can't ignore it completely. God desires for the poor to be cared for. He desires for the non-human creation to be cared for because it's all his. Israel is just stewards in the land. He will tell them in Deuteronomy multiple times, it is not your land, it's my land. And if you don't keep it, if you don't live under my covenant, I'll drive you out just like I used you to drive out the Canaanites. And they didn't keep that. And they didn't, and he did drive them out of the land. Yeah. So he cares for them. And he cares for the non-creation world as well. And part of that Sabbath law is building into that this cycle of rest and replenishment for the land. When he does go and drive them out of the land way later after centuries of abuse, he sends them out of the land. And one of the prophets will tell the people, the land is going to lay desolate for 70 years. Because that's going to be all of those Sabbaths that you neglected, all those Sabbath years being lived out in one chunk. All those years of you neglecting to keep my commandments, I'm going to let the land live out its Sabbath rest. That's how he describes their exile from the world. But that's, again, way, way later. So that's the first thing. Second, verse 12, six days do your work. On the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. God is instituting Sabbath not just for their own ethical purposes of their own relationship with God and their own worship, 
but also to care for the people down the ladder. Sabbath is to be a mutual communal blessing, not just an individual blessing, so that there can be rest and refreshment. Verse 13, be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Do not fall into the sin of idolatry, the sin of turning from God. In order to do that, you're going to worship me in these specific ways. And he lays them out in this next section. Three times a year, you're to celebrate a festival to me. He's going to give Israel its three main feasts. These are the times of year when all of Israel is to gather together at the tabernacle or the temple and to celebrate a festival to the Lord. There's three of them throughout the Hebrew calendar year. Verse 15, celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. That's what we know as Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is Passover. That celebrates their salvation and their deliverance from Egypt. That comes in the spring around, usually around Easter time on our calendar, and there's a reason for that. Uh, verse 16, next one, celebrate the Feast of Harvest with first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. This is the second feast, and this will get elaborated on later in Scripture, but this is what we know of as Pentecost. Sometimes it will be called the Feast of Weeks, but it's 50 days after Passover. That's what the name Pentecost means. 50 days after Passover, this is when the time of the first fruits, the first beginning harvest would be brought in. Late spring-ish, like getting into early summer. This is when you, the, the first fruits harvest. And this was the celebration of the giving of the law. This was the holiday that would become how they would commemorate where they are right now. The giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That's what Pentecost celebrated. So there's a reason that that's the holiday that Jesus chose to send the Holy Spirit in the giving of the new law in the new covenant. But that's a lot later. Verse uh, still in 16. Celebrate the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the fields. This is the feast of booths, or if you know the Sukkoth, um, and it's it's the, the celebration of the full harvest when everything is brought in, and it's and it's a celebration of thanksgiving to God for Him providing for the people in that land. So three times a year, all the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. And then there's these caveats, how they're going to appear, what they're not to do. 18, do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast. That has to do with the Passover. No yeast. We saw in Exodus why that, that was the case. Uh, check the podcast if you want to know more. Uh, the fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. In other words, the fat, that was the good portion. That was the portion that would be burnt on the offering to God. That represented, the fat represented uh, God's portion of the sacrifice. He referred to it colloquially as his meal. That was, that was what you gave to God. And then the rest of the animal would be skinned and would be roasted or boiled and eaten by the priests, by the Levites, and by the worshipers. But the portion, the fat portion, that was for God. That was the sacrifice part. So you offer that. What it's saying is don't leave that till morning. Don't get so caught up in the festival and the sacrificing and the meal and all that that you forget the very reason for it, which is because of me. Do my part first. Then have your celebration of, of, of all of that. You know, put me first and then enjoy all of the goodness that I've provided. Bring the best of the first fruits 
of the soil to the house of the Lord your God. Not just, okay, here's all of my grains. Let me get a percentage of all the apples growing in the fields this year. Here's a percentage of all the olives. No, don't give me the bruised ones. Don't give me the leftovers. Give me the best. You keep the rest. He's instilling in them God's best is what they offer. It's an act of trust. It it's really trusting to say, I could sell all of these at the market and get a really good price, or I could give them to God and in the worldly realm get nothing in return. That's an act of faith. And God's saying, you're not getting nothing in return. I am, I am seeing, if you will trust me, that I am the one who causes all of this in the first place. I mean, trust me with the best. See what I will do with the rest. And then the last one, do not cook a goat or boil a goat in its mother's milk. Older translation is do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, but in modern English, kid doesn't mean goat anymore, it means human. So they've translated it as goat so that you'll understand. This law, this section, it will be repeated three times. It will be repeated in uh, chapter 34, verse 26, and Deuteronomy 14. Do not boil a goat in its mother's milk. The last part of this. Now, one, it's in this section that has to do with sacrificing. So that should be kept in mind. This is referring to sacrificial preparations. Two, Canaanite religion, there's evidence that the cooking of a baby goat in its milk of its mother had some type of, um, of, of restorative or uh, fertility ritual aspect that would guarantee something. There's not enough evidence to say exactly what. But it was, it was seen as this could be a specific pagan way of worshiping, ensuring the, the vibrancy of your livestock. And God's saying, no, none of that. No other gods, no magic, no paganism. Trust me, worship. The other thing is some say that it may have to do, there's a, there's a couple of scholars that say the phrase, in its mother's milk, doesn't literally mean boiling it in its mother's milk. That phrase, in its mother's milk, is a way of referring to a goat or a young offspring of an animal that is still weaning, that has not yet been weaned, that's still nursing. If it's still suckling from its mother, then it's in its mother's milk. And so don't, in other words, don't cook and eat a baby goat that's just been born and is still being nursed by its mother. So there's some that take that approach. And there's something to it. I can't completely dismiss that. It, uh, Spanish in the Middle Ages, Spanish rabbi, uh, I think it was Maimonides, took this law and said this really means or applies don't mix meat and milk dishes. So don't even use the same implements to cook meat and milk together. And this became known as kosher. And to this day, observant Jews do not eat milk and meat in the same meal. They don't even use the same implements. A kosher kitchen is one that a rabbi has gone through and has, has, has inspected and said that all of the meat cooking stuff is kept separate from all of the dairy cooking stuff. That's, what, that's how this law got extrapolated over the years. In its original context, we don't have any reason to believe that that's what God had in mind here. And it's also had to do with worship. And it had to do with the sacrifice system. So whatever it means, it's a weird verse. We'll end on it because there's some debate. And, and the next section, God's going to shift. Um, but regardless, in this whole section, this whole book of the covenant, what God has been doing is saying, this is how you're going to be as a whole, my people, in this land. And you're going to be different than the Egyptians. And you're going to be different than the Canaanites. And that difference is going to come in certain tangible ways how you live your life. 
So will you trust me enough to live the life in these weird seeming ways and, and, and realize that I will provide everything you need? And that's what Israel is agreeing to in this covenant. Those are the terms of the covenant. That's the, that's the terms of the deal. And they're going to agree to it, and then they're not going to keep it. Uh, but that is in the future. We are two minutes over, so get out of here. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. If you haven't yet, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube. We film all of this. We record it so you can follow on each week if you have to leave early for a meeting, et cetera, et cetera. Have a great week. Okay.